Okay, Psalm 73. A lot that we could say about this. Uh, one it is described as a psalm of Asaph. Psalm of Asaph. If you look at Psalm 73 through 83, they're all Psalms of Asaph. Only one other psalm fits that heading, or has that heading, and that is Psalm 50. So Psalm 50, Psalm 73 through 83 are Psalms of Asaph. Now, who was Asaph? He was in the tribe of Levi. Okay, he was in the tribe of Levi. Vicky looked excited about that question. I mean, that question, it was jumping, all, jumping up in the back row. But yes, he was from Levi. We've got that. Okay, what else do you have? David um, appointed him a, a um, song leader? Yes. In the temple? A, a temple singer, I guess you would say. But it, you're, you're right. It goes back to David. Uh, and he is one of the family of singers in the temple, and we find this from First Chronicles 15 in verse 16, 16 verse 5, and 25 and verse 1. Also in Ezra 3 in verse 10, after the return from Babylonian captivity, the family is pictured in that passage. Uh, as they were singing when the foundation of the temple uh, was laid. Uh, But this begins book three of the psalm. If you are a person, and I don't mean this sarcastically, but if you are a person encouraged by the times when Scripture expresses their brokenness, this book is for you. Uh, This book has some of the saddest of all of the Psalms. And what we're studying tonight... Well, I'll tell you a story that strikes me about this. Early in, in my time as a college teacher, there, there was a state rule, not a school rule, but a state rule that people who took our Old Testament poetry class had to write so many words, had to write a paper. And so I had about 50 to 60 students, and they all have to write a paper on the Psalms. Of those 50, 60 students, half of them wrote on Psalm 73 one year. Now that wasn't true every year, but one of those years that struck stuck so with the students that half of them wrote about it. And I think you'll be able to understand that as we get to the end of this tonight. But Let's read the first 14 verses and then we'll stop and comment on those. Surely God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they are no pains in their death and their body is fat and they are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness and the imagination of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my hands pure and I have washed my hands in innocent. For I have been stricken all day and chastened every morning. He starts out, God is good to Israel, to those pure in heart. Some of your translations may have to those who are upright. God is good to the upright in heart and to the pure in heart. Uh, But there's, there's a reason for that. But, but he starts out, and then he takes a surprising turn. He said, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That is his conclusion. But he takes some detours along the way. He said, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. It is not often that a Bible writer tells us He almost lost his faith. And here he dies. Now, this this starts out, that word, but as for me, in verse 2, that phrase is actually in Hebrew, it's one word, It is a conjunction plus the personal pronoun I. Now, that word is going to be used to open verse 2, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 28. Same circumstance. Often in the Bible... When this word is used, it is in a determination that I'm going to do the right thing regardless of how many people do the wrong thing. For example, this is the word used in Joshua 24 verses 14 and 15. You choose who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. Do you notice here? It's kind of the opposite. 
God is good to Israel, but but as for me, I'm sinking. In contrast to you serve who you want, I'm going to serve the Lord. In this passage, God is good to Israel, but I almost gave up the fight. I almost quit walking and following Him. And why was it that He did that? He states that I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant. Now, Psalm 37 said, Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Do not fret because of wrongdoers, for they will wither like the grass and like the green herb. The same kind of thing was said in Proverbs 23 and verse 17. Now right away, the fact that we are told not to envy people who are doing wrong is interesting. One thing it tells us is that a person may do wrong and prosper in doing wrong. It may look like everything in their life is going well and going greatly and therefore there is the reason to envy them. We may envy them because they do sinful things that we might want to do but we are told not to. to, to it doesn't seem like that's so much the case here. It seems like here the case is because they're prospering and everything in their life looks easy. They don't have troubles like other people. The, the, the word prosperity there in verse 3, prosperity, that is the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom which is one Hebrew word that a lot of people in our culture would be familiar with, but, but it represented everything that's good. Not only the absence of war, but all kinds of blessings, all kinds of good things. And the text says, I saw their prosperity and I was envious of them. And he goes on to explain, there are no pains in their death. And their body is fat. He's seen people that seem to have lived a charmed life. Everything goes their way. And even when it comes time to die, a common experience of man is painless. They pass so easily. I can remember often when I was younger, people praying in church for a peaceful hour to depart this life. I haven't heard that as much in years to come. But I understand the request totally. For these wicked people, there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Now, often the Bible, that doesn't represent poor health. That represents abundance, affluence, and ease. Fatness is going to be referred to both in verse 4 and in verse 7. And they are not in trouble as other as mankind. The text says in verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Now, could it be 
Could it be that he is not seeing things correctly? Because isn't it probably true that most everybody's life has some kind of problems or some kind of difficulties? Maybe he is not seeing things as they really are. But I understand what he's saying here. Some seem to live in defiance of God, and yet everything they touch turns to gold. While you see someone who serves God, and everything in their life seems to be falling apart, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Now, so far, he has described their prosperity. But he's about to begin describing their character. And their character is what makes their prosperity so disturbing. In verse 6, pride is their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. It's as if Pride and violence are the very clothes that they are wearing. It is their necklace, it is their garment that covers them. In verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. They mock others. They oppress others. They speak from on high. That may indicate that they are in positions of prominence, of influence, of authority. They speak from on high. And they are not hesitant to mock God, to speak against the heavens in verse 9. To set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. As we've talked about before, expressions like this that talk about the heavens and the earth. And that's about the limits that one can go and speaking evil, they speak against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. They, they speak defiantly and mockingly of God and everyone and everything. We'll see more of this in verse 11. In verse 10, a verse difficult to translate and interpret Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Now, Tommy, yes. I have the ESV. Yes. And my verse 10 says, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Yes. It is very difficult to translate and interpret the idea that the ESV is expressing there, and it may be correct, the idea is these God-defined, powerful people who are so blessed are deceiving God's people. God's people are turning away 
and paying attention to them. That could be the idea expressed. Does anyone have a trans, another translation that gives another idea uh, in verse in verse ten, Phil? Oh no, I'm sorry. I was looking at Go ahead and read what it says if you yeah. want to. NET, therefore they have more than enough food to eat and even suck up the water of the sea. Okay. Point is they they take everything they want in that particular translation, but but that is a it is a difficult verse. And um, depending on what the translation is affects our interpretation. But all the while they are saying in verse eleven, how does God know? And is their knowledge the most high? The sad thing about this, these people probably, if they were in the land of Israel, were not even philosophical atheists. But they were practical atheists. And by that I mean they lived as if there was no God. They may have acknowledged that there was a God there, but they lived like he wasn't. Uh, listen to Psalm 10 verse 4. The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. Then in verse 11, same Psalm, Psalm 10. He said to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see In verse 13, Psalm 10, Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not requite it. They are confident that God will not call them into question for their sins. They are confident that they will never have to give an account for their wrongdoing. And that's the idea in Psalm 73 in verse 11. Their tongue is set against the heavens. It parades through the earth. They oppress others. They wear violence and pride. And they are confident God will never call them to account. And he says in verse 12, These are the wicked and Always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Their bank account is growing every single day as they engage in their wickedness and in defiance of God. And the writer says, what purpose is it? What purpose is it to serve God? In verse 13, surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now, the word stricken in verse 14 is the same word translated plagued in verse 5. Same word. He says of the wicked in verse 5 that they are not plagued like mankind. They are not plagued. They are not stricken. But he says of himself in verse 14 that he is plagued. He is stricken. And not only is he stricken, but the text says all day long 
that he's stricken. It is so difficult for him to know that he is sought to maintain purity. He is sought to listen to God. His life is absolutely falling apart while everything falls together for them. And these expressions, washed my hands in innocence. Remember the statement, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In Psalm 24, in verses 3 and 4. And he has tried to do that. He has kept his heart pure, washed his hands in innocence. And he experiences problem after problem after problem. Now, I want to give you a chance to speak or ask questions in just a moment. But I want to read a passage first that has the same kind of idea. If you will look in Job 21. Job 21. We know what happened to Job. We know something of Job's experiences. In Job 21, Job describes what the life of the wicked is like. I want to tell you what's so interesting about this contextually. This is in the second cycle of speeches between Job and his friends. His friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they all paint the picture of a righteous man. And in their second cycle of speeches, when they paint the picture of the righteous man, it sounds a lot like Job's picture of the wicked man. But but Job 21, I want to begin in verse 7 and read through verse 16. And I want you to just listen to what Job is saying and think about how painful this would have been to him Understanding his losses. In verse 7, why do the wicked still live and continue on and also become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God on them. His ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock, and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp. They rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what should we gain if we entreat Him? Behold, their prosperity is not in their hands. And the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Now I want you to look at a couple of lines Job uses. Look at verse 10, Job 21 verse 10, as he speaks of how their ox and their cow reproduce so abundantly. Remember Job was the richest of the men of the east. His wealth is measured in the number of donkeys, in the number of camels, in the number of livestock that he had. And you remember that he lost all of them. He experienced troubles that the wicked never seemed to experience in life. But I'll tell you something worse than that. 
Job had seven sons and three daughters. And a great wind came down and struck the house. And they were all killed. But in contrast, the wicked, their children skip about all around them. Several years ago, a um, talk show host that I'm not necessarily fond of, and if I call his name, you probably wouldn't be either, but, but uh, he did a show that had some good points about how people are tough, how we're not tough on crime. Now, this was quite a few years ago. And he told the story. And I hate to even say this. Of a woman who was raped when she was 12 years old and the rapist cut off her arm. She survived that attack. She did survive that attack. But the rapist, after spending a while in prison, was released. And he had cameras follow this person and show how the rapist was living his life. It has this lady with her two prosthetic arms trying to help her children in a car seat. Is life always fair? And why, if life is governed by a good and kind God who hates sin and who loves righteousness, why does the world look the way it does? If you've ever questioned that, so did Job. So did the writer of Psalm 73. And I may be a little bit out of bounds, but I think it would be true that everyone who's properly suffered intensely trying to do the right thing has wrestled with these same thoughts at some point in time. I think that was why so many of the students wrote on this psalm that year. Now, before we get on and we see how the rest of the story goes, what questions or comments do you all have on the text till verse 14? Anything? Phil? You made the point after, you know, verse 2, verse 3, why did he almost lose his faith? For I was envious of the arrogant. And I have a note that says, these are the lies that envy 
meaning the description given in four through whatever fifteen. These are the lies that envy puts in our heart. Yes. So when we are envious of these, the prosperity of the world, it it leads to these feelings. Yes, I I, I agree with you, Phil, and yet I would also say that I do think while he overstates his case, like in verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. There is some basis for some of these things that he's being envious about. You know, sometimes my envy of the wicked, and some of his may have been the material prosperity, probably with, with most of us, it is not the prosperity, the material prosperity, that makes us envious. And may God never help us to forget, we have all been blessed beyond anything that we can imagine or deserve. You know, it's it's just a... And don't lose sight of that. And probably that's not our thing, but, but probably it is... Some of the other things that, that, that are mentioned there in Job, and particularly the fact that they're not troubled. You know, they're living in the world, and everybody leaves them alone. And that's fine. And yet, someone who tries to serve God uh, has to uh, experience all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of hardships. And, and so, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think what you're saying is right. And I think it shows us like in verse 3 when he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Sometimes what we see can be deceiving. But uh, at the same time, I agree, there's also an element where there's a validity to what he's seeing. He see, he's not completely dreaming when he thinks he sees the prosperity of the wicked. But verses 14, 15 through 20 is what I put... I, I, the way I outline this is verses 1 through 13, because at 1 through 14, excuse me, he is envious, like Phil was saying, he's envious at the prosperity of the wicked. The turning point of this psalm is Psalm 73. Is verses, is, psalm 73 is verses 15 through 20. And particularly verse 17 is the turning point where he's going to change his perspective on things. One writer went so far, I thought this was very interesting. He said verse 17 is not only the turning point of Psalm 73, but he was writing about the book of Psalms as a whole. He said of the entire book, the entire book of Psalms. That's a dramatic statement. But, but let's look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely, 
You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now, he is struggling. He is struggling with his faith. And he acknowledges this when he gets to the end of this struggle and tells this story here. But he is careful while he is going through the struggle, while he is experiencing the problem, he is careful who he states his doubts to. I don't know if I could emphasize the importance of that enough. If you are wrestling with big spiritual problems, this chapter we would describe, I guess, as a philosophical difficulty in looking at problems in the world and reconciling them with what the Bible says about the God, God's rule. If you are having problems with this, make sure you're going to talk to somebody who's going to help you. And don't go and talk to the weakest person around and destroy their faith. And he said, he, he is careful. He's not going to do this. He said, if I would have just given full bent to all my questions, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Um, this just hit me. This was over 30 years ago. And I think the congregation had asked me to deal with the problem of suffering. But I know I dealt with it in one lesson and just said a few things about it on the basis of Job. And... The family that we were staying with, in a conversation afterwards, the husband was so cynical. It wasn't just a matter of him having questions. He had decided against God. His wife came to us privately afterwards and was apologetic and, and, and said, I'm, I'm sorry, he's been wrestling with some things lately. And it was just a few months after that meeting that he, as an older man, I mean, a little bit younger than I am now, but he was still old. <laughs> but leaves his wife and goes after another woman. Really? That's your answer to the problem of suffering? What sense does that make? Uh, but, but he says he knew enough that he doesn't want to betray a younger generation. And he says, I pondered to understand this and it was troublesome to my sight. Now, I, I might wear you all out in the next some of the next verses with some of the connections I'm going to make with the Psalms. 
But these help me. But when he says in verse 16 that this was troublesome to me, he uses the same root word for trouble that was used in verse 5 to show that the wicked had no trouble. The wicked seemingly had no trouble and even, even his efforts to understand this are troublesome to him. He, he can't put it together. He said, I pondered to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. I want to tell you what's powerful about that. It's not told what happened when he came to the sanctuary, but there is no specific indication that the circumstances have changed. There's no specific indication that the circumstances have changed. But when he comes into the house of God, he sees things from a different perspective. He realizes that the realities of the present are not the ultimate realities. He realizes that the way the situation looks at this given moment is not the way it will always be. I love this statement by Derek Kidner. He said the light breaks through as he turns to God, not as an object of speculation, but of worship against God's eternity and God's sovereignty and God's underived being. He is not dependent upon anyone. These men of the moment are seen for what they are. It seems like he's just coming to the house of God to worship. Now, how many times? I've had this happen a couple of times in my life. That people have had some kind of problems like this and they said, I just, I'm not going to worship until I get this thing worked out. No. The very fact that you're worshiping may be the way to work it out. It may be the answer. It was the answer for him. And thankfulness, the people that I'm thinking of that have told me that eventually came to realize that. And that was the solution for their problems. I came to the sanctuary of God and then I perceived therein. We're going to come back to that word, Lord willing. But one thing he sees when he comes, he turns to God for worship. He comes to the sanctuary of God. One of the things he sees is the wicked are not as secure as they seem. In verses 18 through 20, you see this emphasized. He said in verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. So there in 73, in verse 18, God places them. He places them in a precarious Position in some slippery slope, we'll say. 
But a slippery slope, he places them in uh, a dangerous place. And notice in verse 20, they're going to be destroyed in a moment. And that word, in a moment, that's used there in verse 19, that same Hebrew word can be and is at points translated instantly. Instantly. Uh, in Numbers 16.21, Numbers 16.45, a couple of instances of that. So they are destroyed in a moment. They're destroyed instantly. And then the next text says they are utterly swept away. And that word utterly can be translated, it is a couple of places, completely. So they are destroyed quickly, instantly, and completely. They're broken. It was number 1621 and 1645 that this word um, is translated instantly in several versions. That's Korodathan and Abiram and the ground opening up and swallowing them uh, in that context. And the reference where utterly is translated completely is Isaiah 16 verse 4. There may be others, but that was the one that I wrote down where it's translated uh, completely, this word translated utterly. And it is now, in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. There are times that I've had good, pleasant dreams that you hated to wake up for from. More more often I've had not so good dreams that I was relieved weren't true. But the prosperity of the wicked is compared to a dream. It's going to be just like a mirage of a person seeing water in the desert and it's not there. And in Job 20 verse 8 Job's friend Zophar uses this picture. Job 20 verse 8, a dream is a picture of the prosperity of the wicked. So, what do we got so far? The turning point after he is so envious of the prosperity of the wicked in verses 1 through 14, and he gives full vent to that, and he is keeping silent among people whose faith he would destroy, but trying to ponder it, but he keeps worshiping, and he comes to the house of God to worship. And he understands his error, that he's been looking at everything from the right now, right here, right now perspective, and losing sight of the eternal God. Is that easy to do? Yes, it's easy to do. That's one of the values of coming together to worship God. It calls us away from the immediate, the right here and right now, and helps us to focus on what is eternal. That's one of the values of it. Um, what other thoughts did you all have? In verses 21 through 28, Twenty-one through twenty-eight. This will be 
the blessing of fellowship with God. Blessing and fellowship with God. In verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before him. Now, I don't know if you remember, but verse 22 was one of those verses that we put that opens with that same expression, but as for me, that conjunction plus the Hebrew personal pronoun, verse 2, verse 22, verse 23, verse 28. And he's referring to this period of his life when he was thinking about such things as saying, I was senseless, I was ignorant, I was like a, I was living on the level of an animal. I was living as a beast. He looks back in shame at the very fact he entertained these thoughts so strongly and he let them affect him so profoundly. He, he's embarrassed by him, but he says, the next verse starts the same way, but as for me, I am continually with me with you are continually excuse me I am continually with you and he says you have taken hold of my right hand I, I don't know if if um, you all have picked up sometimes that I I like I like an expression and I got it from this verse that, that, you know, sometimes I say, Lord, you know, um, help us to hold on to you. And when we don't have any strength to hold on to you, hold on to us. But isn't that what this verse is saying? That in spite of his senseless and ignorance, and he's weak and wavering, God had taken hold of his right hand. And he says in verse 24, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. The word guide in verse 24 is the same word used in Psalm 23 in verse 3. Um, You will guide me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. With your counsel... You will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Okay? Now, we told you in verse 17, we would come back to this. Verse 17, I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. In verse 24, it says... And afterward, He will lead us to glory. These, in and afterward, in the New American Standard, are from the same Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word. He is contrasting the end of the wicked with the end of the righteous. 
He is contrasting the end of the wicked with the end of the righteous. The afterward of the wicked with the afterward of the righteous. He is contrasting these ideas with each other. Now, it is interesting to see the logic that some use in discussing this verse. Uh, For example, there was one writer when I read the book of Proverbs, I studied the book of Proverbs uh, several years ago and and I looked at several that I thought were good commentaries and this commentary I'm about to describe was a good commentary. But when he came to he, he had at the beginning, he says, the subject of life after death is beyond the scope of the book of Proverbs. So every time he came to a passage that seemed to question that, like look at Proverbs 14.32, for example. Proverbs 14.32. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Okay. And he said, well, we know that's not talking about life beyond death because life beyond death is beyond the scope of Proverbs. <laughs> well, well, I think I'm encountering a little circular reasoning here. And I think we, and, and I have seen some writers do the exact same thing with Psalm, 20, with Psalm 73 and say, well, the, the book of Psalms doesn't discuss afterlife, so you know, we know this can't be. Listen, not everyone who is a believer, life ends in glory. Now, not, I, didn't, I didn't word that sentence right. Not everyone who is a believer has a life that ends in glory. It's a little bit better. And not everyone who is wicked has a life that ends in disaster. To make such a broad statement, you have to be looking at eternity. You have to be. It's just absolute necessity. And and, and another passage where you see that in the Psalms that we've covered already is Psalm 49, 15. It is hard to get around when it says God redeems my soul from death that it's talking about life beyond this one. And then he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven... And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, do you remember how the phrase heaven and earth, the phrase heaven and earth were used together in verse 9? In verse 9, it was talking about the mouth of the wicked. And when it says the mouth of the wicked is set against the heavens and it parades to the earth. But now he'll use that term heaven and earth again to emphasize that we have, as God's people, the greatest of all blessings. We have fellowship with God. Envious of the wicked? They need to be envious of us. We have what they cannot imagine. Whom have I in heaven? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. That could even sound like death to me. My flesh and my heart may fail. 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Apparently, his relationship with God would not end when his flesh and his heart failed. His relationship with God wouldn't end, but would only be strengthened. It's Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. The word for perish is the same word used in Psalm 1 verse 6. And some writers have pointed out some similarities between the first psalm and book 3 and the first of the psalms. But the way of the wicked will perish, Psalm 1 verse 6. Same word here, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Do any of your translations have anything different in verse 27 for unfaithful? Desert you. This is a word for marital unfaithfulness. And it's sometimes translated in Hosea, like, like play the harlot or something like this. This is talking about people who... Um, it, it's, a, it's a picture of leaving God. It, it, a marital unfaithfulness is used to picture these people's unfaithfulness to their covenant with God. But then he says, after he talks about those wicked people who are unfaithful to God, he says, but as for me... Same expression used in verse 2. And this is the way it's used in Joshua 24. Whatever the world's going to do, I've learned this. I'm going to do this. He didn't use it that way in verse 2. Now he uses it that way in verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Remember how he started the psalm? God is good to Israel. God is good to Israel. He uses the word God. He uses the word good again. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. His conclusion matches his introduction. But there has been a struggle along the way to get to that point. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He has gone from a skeptic skeptic to an evangelist. He is now telling of God's works. And the word in verse 28 for tell, the word in verse 28 for tell is the same word translated in verse 15, speak. In verse 15, he was careful not to speak, not to tell, lest he betrayed the generation of your children. He was careful not to tell, not to speak. Now, in verse 28, he is telling everyone and speaking to everyone of God's works. I do think after you've been through a struggle... And you've come to understand God's words and God's ways better as a result of it. That may be the time to tell the story. Tell the time, tell the story when you've seen the solution, when you've seen the answer. Now, I know that a lot of ideas may come to your mind on that. Anything you want to share or ask about? 
We always like at the end to talk about how this psalm points to Jesus. And always it seems that you all come up with things that I haven't thought of. But let me mention a couple at the beginning. In Psalm 73, verse 5 and verse 14, we talked about that the New American Standard uses the words plagued and stricken. Now, it's the same word. We pointed that out. Same word. The Greek translation uses a word that basically means whipped. And that word is used in Matthew 20 in verse 19 in Mark 10, in verse 34, in Luke 18, verse 33, and John 19 and verse 1 to refer to the scourging of Jesus. Now think about its use in this passage. The wicked don't experience that, the psalm says. But Jesus does. But maybe you identify with the righteous. Maybe you identify with the speaker. And you can think, I've tried to serve God and I have been stricken. I have been plagued all day long. So as Jesus, as Gary said, I want to tell you, if you think you understand the psalm, Jesus understands the psalm. Jesus understands this psalm. And Jesus lived this psalm. He lived this psalm. And this Next point, maybe not as strong, but in verse 6, pride is, their gar- pride is their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. The word that is used for garment here, the word that's used in the Greek translation, is a word used in Revelation 7, verses 9 verses 13 and 14 of some who are clothed in white robes and those who are clothed in white robes the question is asked who are these you know who these are these are those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb through the blood of Jesus people who have worn the garments of sin can wear the garments of salvation people who have worn the robes of sin can wear the robes of forgiveness. Now, 
you all probably have some other things before we get to uh, another point. But but what else do you all have? What what, what other thoughts are there, Vicky? Uh, Okay. Well, that is a good point. It's, it's Jesus promises his presence just as God was continually with them. God's presence is promised. And so Jesus is. Remember when the book of Matthew opened, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 1, verse 23, and when the book ends, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He enters humanity through um, his birth, but he is always with his people. Okay. What else? Anything? I like the way a couple of writers stated. One says, God's ultimate answer to our suffering comes in the form of Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, who entered into our human sufferings to the point of dying on the cross. He was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father. In other words, God afterwards took Jesus to glory. And those who are united with Him can rejoice by His resurrection, for He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that was by Tripper Longman in his commentary uh, in the Tyndale series on Psalms. But Jesus is the reason... Because he knows our suffering and because he was raised victorious with his counsel, he guides us and afterward receives us to glory. Okay. Anything else? Well, thank you for um, listening. And um, Isaiah, would you want to lead us in prayer? Lord God of heaven and earth, we are so thankful that we can call you our God and our Father and our protector and our rock. You guide us and you strengthen us. And sometimes we are confused as to the the reason that you're allowing things to play out the way that they do. But we see that your master plan is in effect. And Lord, give us the strength to trust you and to be able to see that when we put our faith in you, that you will always provide for us, whether that's in this life or in the life to come. We're thankful for Jesus who saves us, gives us a hope of heaven, 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Did you want to get those songs? Christy, did you you put those songs? Songs are here. Um, Who would want to lead us? Isaac, you want to lead us? You know, one of the ways, Phil's Phil's our, our fearless leader tonight. Or maybe fearful leader, fearful, yeah. fearful. But um, one thing that that I was uh, something the way Isaiah worded the prayer, um, I can remember some some ra- some writings of rabbis who. And this was something I, I was. I'm not just didn't spend a whole lot of time with them. This was something Marty Pickup one time told me, and he was showing me some examples. That when you look at some examples of scripture, it wasn't the field in the Old Testament. The rabbi said, "There's got to be a life after death for these promises to be fulfilled." Because said, "Just what does? How does the Old Testament teach life after death?" Just by the fact some of the promises cannot be fulfilled in this life points us to an eternity. But thank you. Go ahead. I'm trying to trying to. We didn't get copies. We didn't get copies. All right. Oh, did we? You, oh, Isaac, do you have any copies? I thought it was still passing. I thought it was too. Oh, wait, we need some, Isaac. Maybe we'll get one more. <laughs> Thank you. We can share this. Okay, we'll Thank you. Okay. So we'll sing the one with Almighty God Beyond the Veil. It's a little, uh, little, uh, well, I don't know how familiar everybody is with that tune, but uh, hopefully we can get it. Let's see. Also be God surely good to Israel. To everyone whose heart is pure, but as for me, I nearly fell. My footsteps were no longer sure, no longer sure, for I was in fear of the crowd. once with wealth and.
watching from excess, their hearts overflow with dreams they seek. They stop, they threaten to oppress his shameful words, they proudly speak. together well I thought okay so then the verse 13 and on let's see so we will there's more verses at the bottom 23 and following we'll just continue the same tune above Please trouble me when 